I think is really important, not just for students with learning problems, but I believe all individuals, if they're gonna maximize their potential, they have to learn, operate on the edge of frustration and failure, right? That's where you get better, is learning the next thing that you don't know how to do. That for all of us, we reach a point of frustration because we don't know how to do something. And in a way that you can, not just tolerate frustration, understand that persevering through moments of frustration is how you break through barriers and new levels of performance. Welcome to Embrace the Journey, Living Beyond Limits, where we uncover the extraordinary potential within each of us. Today, we're honored to be joined by Scott Bazilko, a distinguished leader in education with over 30 years of experience. Serving as the Executive Director at Winston Preparatory Schools, Scott's journey has been dedicated to shaping not just students, but resilient, adaptable individuals ready to tackle life's twists and turns. Through his relentless dedication and research, Scott and his team at Winston Prep offer a transformative approach, teaching not only academic skills, but also the hidden curriculum of resilience, self-awareness, and self-advocacy. Their mission is to equip individuals with the belief that they can overcome any challenge and achieve their fullest potential. Join us as we delve into Scott's wealth of knowledge and insights exploring how we prepare students and individuals to thrive in a world that demands adaptability and perseverance. Get ready to embrace the wisdom of Scott as we learn to navigate life's journey beyond limits. Enjoy. All right, Scott, thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure to have you on my podcast. I'm very excited to discuss with you um, what we're going to go over today about learning and, and how people uh, develop certain characteristics in their personality. So I'm really, I've been looking forward to this for a while, just to pick your brain and to, to learn more about what you do. So my first question really is about what your background and experiences are and how it's led you to where you are today. And then more importantly, what's next? Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation as well. So my background, I guess I'll start by saying that I've chosen this field through a journey that I'm about to describe my own experiences as a learner, which are very much a part of, of why I ended up where I am as an educator. On the one hand, I did well in school. I did well in athletics, which is a very important influence in my life. But as time went on and I got into high school, even though I was able to uh, perform well as a student, I I remember having thoughts as early as my freshman, sophomore year of high school. I just found conventional education, I guess, uninspired is, is the best way to describe it. And my mother was an educator. She was an elementary school librarian, and I was always surrounded by her friends who were teachers and spent a lot of time with some really passionate, wonderful educators in my personal time, including my mom. So education was always present in my life. At simultaneously uninspiring. So I always had this, never really thought about going into education as a career path, but it was just always present in my mind. And when I ended up in college, I chose business finance as the first area I studied. Wasn't exactly passionate about that, but it seemed a practical choice. Spent a little time after college working in the stock market and just decided that wasn't for me. And I took a little time to decide what could I do that would really make an impact on the world, make a difference? Uh, landed on education. 
went back to school to get my teaching certificate at Penn State. I had no clear vision of what I wanted to teach. I just wanted to teach. So through my college coursework, the shortest path from where I was to teaching certification was to get certified in secondary social studies. And I chose that just simply because it was the easiest entry point into teaching given what my coursework was. So my first job was a teacher, public school in central Pennsylvania. And I was a long-term sub for maternity placement in a, what was called and may still be called resource room, special education setting for students with learning, learning disabilities. It was long before anybody started using the term different. And I obviously had no background in that. I was just substitute teacher, but I became fascinated with these kids who seemed to be capable and intelligent in so many ways yet weren't doing well in school. I became so fascinated with them that I started to research what this term learning disabilities was all about and became so interested in that group of students and the concept in general that I thought I was going to go back to school yet again and become a school psychologist. In my search for school psychology master's program, I literally stumbled on a master's program specifically in learning disorders at Columbia University. That program, deciding to go there, meeting a woman named Margaret Jo Shepard, who is one of the matriarchs in the field, one of the important leaders, one of the most thoughtful, analytical, intelligent, and articulate people I've ever met, and Joe brought all those capabilities to the study of this group of kids and studying with her at Columbia was so informative and inspiring and unlocked the world of cognitive science to me in a way that led me to believe that schools should be informed by cognitive science, that the way we understood learning differences, learning disorders, learning disabilities, whatever term you choose through understanding the, the cognitive foundations. And it occurred to me that all students would be better off if we understood how they learned. And if we made schools less of an exercise in figuring out what to teach and delivering that through a one-size-fits-all curriculum, and instead, I began to believe that schools should endeavor to understand how students learn and respond to that in a way that's meaningful for each student or at least each type of student, each learning profile, if you will. So when I left that program, it was my intent to figure out how I could begin to do that work in a world that was dominated by one-size-fits-all conventional education. I was introduced to an individual named Douglas Atkins, who had a similar background through a similar program in Harvard's Graduate School of Education and had some experience starting and running schools of this kind. In particular, he was part of the Landmark School in Massachusetts. I was one of the group of individuals that started Landmark College, the first college exclusively for students with learning differences. And Douglas had just been hired to start a small school for kids with learning differences right outside of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. After some months of back and forth, Douglas and I decided to join forces there along with his wife, Kristen, and we built a school founded on these principles of understanding each individual, 
building a program specifically to meet their needs. And that's what I've been doing ever since. Some changes, some updates to that along the way eventually led me to an opportunity in New York taking over Winston Prep, which was a small school with 50 students literally in the back of a church on Manhattan's Upper West Side. And infused Winston Prep with some of those notions that I just described. And it's resonated. It's resonated there. It's resonated throughout the region. We now have campuses in New Jersey, Connecticut, Long Island, two in Manhattan. And we now have an operation, two schools, actually, one of our regular programs and one of our transitions programs for young adults in the San Francisco Bay Area. And just a few years ago, we also started an online program. So that simple idea that I had back in graduate school of building schools based on cognitive science rather than a one-size-fits-all curriculum is what I've followed ever since, fortunate enough to cross paths with a lot of other people who shared that notion or came to embrace it. And here we are today serving over 600 students. But it's all been shaped by that first experience with a group of students in a resource room were struggling to do well in school, were identified as special education, but there was real no in-depth understanding of how these seemingly intelligent kids were struggling in school. And that was the original fascination, and it means, remains our fascination today. Has that fascination been stemmed with the research and the work that you've done, or are you still fascinated by how these individuals learn and how that relates to everybody else? Oh. The fascination remains. I mean, we, you know, this endeavor to understand how people learn, what variation is there in learning, what different types of intelligence are there, what are the cognitive processes that allow people to do well on any given task or not. As I said, my professor at Columbia, Margaret Jo Shepard, you know, she was in the early days of starting to do that work. So we're really only kind of second, third generation, and there's so much we don't know about how people learn, what allows them to do well, what causes them to struggle. So Winston Prep, you know, we have a, an arm of our organization called the Winston Innovation Lab, which is research and faculty development. It's R&D for education. We do that because we feel as though education, like any other endeavor, should have research and development you know, going on. We should always try be trying to learn and understand more. So it's very much part of what we do. We view ourselves as an educational organization, but one that, that is also constantly learning because we need to understand more so that we can use that to understand our students and help them quite simply. Are there any similarities or, or differences between what society perceives as those we've learned differences and those we've out? So look, Winston Prep students are a representative sample of kids in every school in this country and, and beyond. Some are identified, some aren't. Now, there's a wide variation in the types of learning difficulties that, that we see. And there's a, a wide variation in severity. You know, there's the stories out there, people like, Churchill, Einstein, Tom Cruise, Cher, Richard Branson, I could go on and on. Some confirmed to be learning disabled, some not, some self-diagnosed. But the point is that there's even talented, accomplished people in this realm. There are 
talented people not identified walking through public and conventional education settings every day who may, you know, struggle with attention, struggle with organization, struggle with reading or writing, but they could be A students and they're C students and they just walk through life that way. I meet people all the time who ask me what I do when I explain it to them. I people of all walks of life, all manner of professions, all manner of conventional success or not. And more often than not, they say to me, that's interesting. I think I could have used a place like Winston Prep when I was growing up. Because everybody's got their set of strengths and weaknesses, right? It's the rare student who fits exactly what the grade level curriculum is designed to do, right? Grade level curriculum, teach everybody, pick your grade. It's great. Conventional schools in the United States teach all fifth graders the same stuff at the same pace order from the first day of school to last day of school. It's prescribed. We know from what we understand about being able to assess and understand cognition and academic skills that, you know, it's sort of more or less built for the average student who's average at everything. You know, how many people have we met who are average at everything? So the chances of prescribed one size fits all curriculum at any grade level fitting you is actually small. So this idea that there's like normal students and then there's this small percentage of like 20 kids who are learning disabled, we can get into, you know, the the research behind that and the bell curve and, and all those sorts of things. And that's all true, but it's also true that everybody learns differently and there's wide variation. And it's our belief that schools should assess and understand each individual as opposed to trying to do the same thing with everybody. Yeah. I think that I, I know from my environment in terms of coaching, it sometimes gets lost that every player has a unique set of circumstances, right? They have a, a different home life. They have different academic needs, different social circles that they live in. So I think when I look at your ideas behind the continuous feedback system that you have within the school, the very first pillar of everything is understanding the individual person, right? So can you explain a little bit about how you do that with each individual and how do you go about giving them the individual attention that they need to really understand them as a unique individual. Yeah, sure. Well, first, let me say that, um, since you introduced the lens of, of sports and athletics, spent most of my childhood on ice rinks and football fields and, you know, whatever was available and was lucky enough to have some success in the ice hockey world. And it's always struck me that we would never think twice to take a a running back in football who's fast, but doesn't have enough muscle mass to put that individual on a weight training program so they can get stronger, right? In other words, remediate their weakness so that they can reach their potential. That's what happens in athletics all the time. That's all we're doing. We're taking individuals who have potential, who have a set of strengths and weaknesses and shoring up their weaknesses so they're no longer in their way and they can perform at their best. That's an oversimplification, but not much of one. And so it's always fascinating me that we have no problem practicing to get better in music, practicing to get better in theater, practicing to get better in athletics. But on the academic side, everybody shows up every day, does the same thing. You take a test next week, you get an A, a B, C, or you fail or whatever and you move on to the next lesson, as opposed to saying, oh, this student's 
getting C's, they could be getting A's because they have trouble differentiating between main ID and detail when they read. So let's help them get better at that so that their grades go up. That's what we're doing. That's practice designed to meet the needs of an individual. We're simply applying that to academics the same way you or any other coach does it in, in that realm, right? So how do we assess and understand those sentence strengths and weaknesses? You know, it's part of your question and it's a good and important one because it's more challenging to see and understand the strengths and weaknesses of the human mind than it is to see something that's gross motor on an athletic field that you can observe. So we rely a lot on standardized tests, which are get a bad rap as they're too often used to put labels on limits on kids. They're really designed to assess and understand people so that we can help them. In fact, Alfred Binet, who developed the first IQ test said that that's what his measure was for. So we rely a lot on the evaluations that experts in neuropsychology, psychoeducational evaluations do both within the public school setting or some families go to outside private individuals to do that work and that, and then we also do some of our own assessments at Winston prep to understand the pattern of strengths and weaknesses allows us to, to hone in on what skills are weak and why, so that we can develop those skills throughout the curriculum for many of our students who are dyslexic. It's the mechanics of, of reading and writing, coding and end. Um, it's actually the most straightforward of the learning problems we face. You know, some about a, that's about a third of our students. A third of our students have what we call nonverbal learning disorders. Um, some people think of that as overlapping with autism spectrum disorder. It's another slight oversimplification, but it's kids who, instead of having trouble with mechanics of language, have trouble more with comprehensioning, reasoning, social skills. And then we have kids who have ADHD or what we call executive function problems, kids who are disorganized, impulsive, et cetera. So those are the three main types of learning problems. We use that just as a lens to ultimately understand the individual. And we do that now for slightly over 600 students across our various campuses. And that's such an important part of what we do that what we train teachers to do is to understand that the process of assessing and understanding needs to be continuous. It's not a one-time thing where you understand a kid's learning profile and then you pull that script off the shelf and do that because learning is messy. Learning is dynamic. As you know, from coaching, there's times where a player can practice something for weeks and weeks until there's a breakthrough, right? And they, they develop a school and a skill in a way that they're able to consistently perform it. So learning doesn't happen in straight lines. So we believe that school needs to not only assess and understand to pick a starting point, but then assess and understand the struggles and the successes a student has every day so we can continue to make their program relevant and meeting their needs and helping them understand themselves as well. Is the focus on balancing out the weaknesses more than focusing on the strengths so they have a better, well-rounded individual learning experience? Where's the balance between working on their strengths and then really trying to bridge the gap between the, the challenges that they face and the strengths that they have. I mean, it probably sounds like a sloppy, easy answer to say both, but 
it really is both and it has to be both. And here's the good news in our model. So we have kids for seven hours a day. Seven hours a day is actually a lot. If you're focusing your time and energy and attention on understanding what's in the way and helping them get better at that, and also helping them discover their strengths and explore them. Because if you are not so much focused on making sure you deliver the one size fits all curriculum and you do follow the lesson plan. So you make sure you get to the end of the unit by next Friday. So you get to the end of the chapter by the end of the month. So you can finish the curriculum by June. That's the marching orders in conventional education. Teach the curriculum, finish the curriculum. And what we believe is that every day, I think this is controversial. Any teacher in any, any setting would say this, that in trying to teach a group of students the same thing, the same way, there are moments in every class, every day where somebody's struggling somebody's succeeding and to slow down and to stop and being able to understand why those are struggling means you have to step away from the time and scope and sequence of the conventional curriculum. If you instead focus on the idea that if I help those kids get better at say writing, writing's what's in the way. I spend my time remedying their writing difficulties. That's going to enable them to later do better in any curriculum because they're going to have the skills to do it. So it's a skills focus. Yeah, we teach content. I think we do a good job of teaching rich content, but we're using that to develop skills. And in seven hours a day, there's plenty of time to develop the weaknesses and also maximize the strengths. Having said that, so we can do both, but having said that, we're absolutely making sure that they do well enough the things that are in their way that it doesn't hold their back. So to use your soccer version, we're not going to try to turn everybody into equally as good with their left and right foot. But if their left foot is weak, we want to develop that so that it's not in their way. It's not holding them back from having success. So, right. you know, is it always going to be perfectly balanced? No, but you want to make sure just like in soccer and hockey, basketball and anything sports, you got to be able to go both ways, right? Or, or you're going to, you're going to reach a level where that's exploited and known that you can't go to your left. So you got to go to your left well enough to be able to play the game at a high enough level to exploit your strengths. And that's how we join us and learn more about Winston Preparatory Schools and their mission to facilitate the independence and meaningful participation of students. At Winston Prep, they frame experiences to help individuals understand themselves better, maximizing strengths and balancing weaknesses. It isn't just a school, it's pioneering a personalized learning. Their research and innovative models set the standard for education. Let's empower individuals to embrace their strengths and chart their own paths to success. Discover more at winstonprep.edu. The one thing that stuck with me from our last conversation was the phrase framing experiences. Can you just explain a little bit about what you interpret in terms of framing experiences, how you use that and how you believe the support of the teachers, your staff, your, your education, your institution, how do framing experiences build character in individuals to deal with all the modern assets of life in general? Yeah. So important, right? A lot of people in education call those things teachable moments, right? Is the cliche. And at Winston Prep, we don't look at teachable moments as rare opportunities or 
the side dish. We look at it as the main event, right? So when I talk about continual assessment and understanding, we call it the continuous feedback process or continuous feedback system. What we mean by that is that we're going to pick a point based on our assessment and understand the first math lesson so you can get to the second. We're focused on assessing and understanding how a student reacts to the first lesson, the first moment, before we think about what's the second lesson, the second moment. So that because there's so much opportunity in every moment beyond just getting it right or wrong, whatever it is. And math is a great example because math is so often considered, you know, black and white, right or wrong. And to a large extent it is. And so, but there's a process, right? So typically a process, a students get older, a long involved process. So watching how a student approaches a math problem, how they make mistakes, why they make mistakes is way more important to us than getting the final answer. They'll the final answer if we teach them how to go through the right process and in going through that process, how to be self-reflective, how to be resilient, how to handle the discouragement of getting it wrong. That's what we mean by framing the experience and the framing the experience to us is every moment, every day, social decision-making, how they do in reading, how they do in problem solving, how they do in a science lab, working with a partner. So we're always looking to each moment as a way to assess and understand their academic skills, but also socially, emotionally, how do they handle success? How do they handle teamwork? How do they handle it when they struggle? And this, I think is really important, not just for students with learning problems, but I believe all individuals, if they're going to maximize their potential, they have to learn, operate on the edge of frustration and failure. Right. That's where you get better is, you know, learning the next thing that you don't know how to do that for all of us, we reach a point of frustration because we don't know how to do so. I believe that how an individual handles those moments, whether it's a student with a math learning problem in a ninth grade classroom or a physician or an executive or someone in graduate school to push the limits of your potential, you have to learn how to wor work at that limit safely and in a way that you can not just tolerate frustration, but understand that persevering through moments of frustration is how you break through the barriers and new levels of performance. I don't understand how anybody can begin to do that without doing what you just described, helping students frame those experiences. Like we look for moments where kids are frustrated. I believe that too many educators avoid those moments. It's frustrating for teachers when your job is to teach and kids aren't learning. That's frustrating. The counterintuitive approach is, oh great, look, a moment of frustration. This, it, yeah, teachable moment because we have an opportunity here not to teach something about math in the struggle with a math problem, but teach something about how to struggle and persevere and be resilient. So we're looking to frame those experiences every day so that when students graduate or they mainstream before graduation, that we give them the social emotional foundation to persevere through difficult moments, to be real self-reflective so they can learn on their own. Because we know for the most part, we're never going to get anybody to be good at everything, right? So most people are going to gravitate to their strengths. 
They're going to pick something they're good at in life. Uh, yet they, in anything, they're going to meet moments of frustration and doubt. So we try to prepare them for those moments as much as we're preparing them to be good at reading, writing, and math. Now, I know nothing here is black and white and then easy. I know you've done years and years of research and gave it a lot of experience. I'm assuming you deal with a lot of individuals at the very beginning that have a lot of frustration when they can't achieve something at early doors and they feel like they maybe should be able to yeah. do. What are some of the key principles that you guys use to help them through that initial phase of frustration? It's rare that students don't come to us frustrated. Most students come to us with significant frustration. They come to Winston Prep because they struggled elsewhere. So frustration is inherent. One of the first things we try to do is help them understand why. Here's your set of strengths and weaknesses. When we're assessing and understanding them in order to help them, we're also assessing and understanding them so they can understand themselves. That's so empowering. Every year, October, early November, parent conferences, back to school night, whatever it is, we meet new parents who say, oh my gosh, thank you so much. My child is, is different already. I'm always fascinated about how that can happen in four, six, eight weeks. And typically it's because we're focused on them, not the one size fits all curriculum. And we're helping them understand the circumstance they're in. Here's why you struggle, but here's also your talents, your strengths, show them evidence. So we're teaching them about themselves. That fits into the category from your last question about framing experiences. We need to frame their whole experience of their school life to date when they join us. It's so that they can, I often equate it to swimming. My parents were both swim coaches, my whole family swam. And I, I think about those days, hours and hours at the pool all the time. And I say to teachers, we have to remember when our kids come to us, it's like, to them, it looks like school. We're all teachers. They don't know what's different about Winston Prep. And we're going to ask them to jump into the pool, just like every other teacher before us has done. And our kids have struggled to swim. So it's scary to jump in the pool. And we're like, trust us. We're going to finally be the ones to teach you to swim. And we have to understand that in order to do that, to get their belief, to get their trust that this is going to be different, that we have to explain to them, why have you struggled? We understand why you've struggled. And instantly the conversation becomes about them instead of us as teachers or the curriculum. So you got to get to the, to, to self-awareness, begin to build that early on so that they understand themselves and they start to believe that this is a really different type of place and experience. I was going to ask that about how big self-awareness was for actually understanding what they're going through to build trust in somebody else. If you don't believe in yourself or you're not acknowledging of what's going on in yourself, are you able to trust those around you? Yeah. You know, it's been doing this now for 33 years, something like that. And one of the things that surprises me the most always and still is how quickly their perspectives can change just by our attempts to, when I say assess and understand them, getting to know them, you know, we're asking them about their struggles in school. They have struggles in, in, in math. We we're having conversations about 
why did that happen? What were you thinking? There? You know, in a way that's not judgmental, it's not get it right or else you're going to fail on your homework tonight. It's about that, that notion of assessing and understanding them. If you're really doing that with a truly inquisitive, I want to know what makes you tick so I can help you, kids pick up on that right away. They pick up on that difference between that approach and conventional education where they have to walk into a building. And even if the teacher's caring and great, so so many teachers are, it's still the, the main idea, what's driving the bus is getting to the end of the curriculum at the end of the day. Like I said before, so you can get to the end of the unit, the end of the chapter, the end of the curriculum by June. And it's the teacher's responsibility to get there and the kids have to keep up. And so the relationship is with the curriculum. At Winston Prep, the relationship is about you, the student. And people ask me, well, you are, how do we do that? What's the secret? There's no secret. You just genuinely need to try to understand them, understand what makes them as readers, as writers, as students of math, students of science. And instantly kids realize, wait a second, this is about me. Now. They're talking to me about me. They want to get to know me and they want to help me get better. And they become often they're already self-aware. They just haven't had a partner yet to have the conversation. So they're trying to figure it out on their own. And they come up with coping mechanisms like withdrawing and not talking and not participating in class. Here it's like, okay, so you got eight out of 10 problems wrong in the math homework last night. Let's talk about it. Who else struggled and why? Let's tear this apart. And we're beating the sports metaphors to death here because we're both sports guys, but it's like film room, right? It's like, it's like watching game film and you know, it's okay. It's error analysis, right? Is, is what that is. And also what worked and what didn't we allow kids to do that, give them a safe place to do it, give them a partner to do it with. And 90% of the kids begin to get what's going on and relax and engage in that process within the first couple of weeks of being at Winston. It's fascinating, but there's no secret other than just do it. Discover the power of trust within. Through his methods and research, Scott emphasizes the importance of support and self-awareness as a gateway to knowing oneself and trusting others. Are you recognizing teachable moments in your daily life for personal growth or feeling frustrated? Embrace change through self-reflection. Raise mindset invites you to explore these transformative ideas Trust starts within. Find your path to grow today at www.raisemindset.org. A big factor is taking away the pressure of the actual outcome versus the, the performance. I'm not worried right now whether you hit the target. I'm worried about making you become a better version of yourself. How, how important do you think it is in terms of what you guys do in taking away that pressure of A's, B's and C's in a standardized test versus focusing on improving the individual it's everything you can't get it done without that you have to change the culture and climate of school by doing that uh, get away from the judgmental nature of conventional grading systems all the time i mean yeah we have grades ultimately we want our students to be able to perform but we have a process orientation and mindset every day and we immerse them and we try to teach them how to use the same reflective process we do to understand them. And again, I've, I'm always amazed at how quickly students welcome and will adopt that mindset of, okay, we're going to have a 
process orientation that's going to allow us to eventually perform. But as I say to kids all the time, the view Winston prep is practice for real life. You know, relax. This isn't real life. This is just school. Show up every day and get better. We're going to help you get better. So that when you leave here, you can go off and, and do great things. And viewing it as practice, as opposed to in school, every day is game day. You got to perform. There's an assignment, your class participation. We're always evaluating kids' performance. And there's nothing wrong with that in the right place at the right time. But if every day is just your, an evaluation of performance instead of skill development, then at some point, school becomes nothing more than a mechanism to sort out the people who have skills from the people who don't. And that's what we think, good students, bad students, A students, C students, kids who go to really competitive colleges, kids who don't. Think about all the ways conventional education thinks about that. The whole thing set up to evaluate kids' performance. And that starts way too young. Instead of what you're describing as a culture of process and skill development so that you can perform later. You can perform in the moments of performance. And we're going to put you into those, but we're also going to put you into practice. And again, I mean, sports is so rich with this stuff. You've got game day and you've got practice. In conventional education, it's like every day is game day because we judge kids on their performance all the time. And I think that's ineffective and probably damaging to a lot. I'm really interested in how you guys have come up with, I know you have the qualities of a sustainable and independent learner where you've developed eight different traits that leads to a successful individual. Yeah, they're, they're the traits that are that our research and the research of others found to be most highly correlated with success over the lifespan. Can you tell me a little bit about that, that model and what you think those attributes lead into individuals in both the academic world, professional world, sports world, are they transferable across disciplines? Yeah, I believe that they are. Resilience is my favorite. Self-reflective capacities, time management, social problem solving. There's a Someone in the field of, of learning differences, Rick Lavoie is his name, and he's used to run a school in New England, and he's been a lecturer for a long time now on the circuit. And he talks about the hidden curriculum, all of the things that allow you to do well in school, but aren't explicitly the curriculum. And that's what we're talking about here. And we've tried to research and understand the hidden curriculum so that we can make it not hidden and teach it. Time management is huge. You're good at time management, it greatly increase your likelihood of doing well in school and life. If you're good at social problem solving, if you're good at self-reflection, you're resilient. These are all the things that allow a good student to be a student, but aren't for the most part anywhere explicitly in the curriculum. So we're just trying to unpack what are the habits of a successful student? What are the habits of a successful person? What are the underlying skills? And make those explicit instead of hidden. That's what we're trying to do there. And I agree with you that they seemingly are more important now than ever because I think so many factors, social media, the internet, but I think there's some others that have caused life for young people to go faster than ever to have increased pressure to perform 
sooner and more often. We have such an outcomes-driven culture that I think we've lost that process orientation that we were just talking about a few minutes ago. And when you lose that process orientation, you don't give kids time or space or experience to develop those thoughtful, reflective capacities that allow you to problem solve over the course of your lifespan. You know, that's why we're focused on those things. That's what we've done research to identify what really correlates with success. And that's how we found those eight things and, and why we teach it explicitly. It actually started a couple different ways. One, I have a colleague, friend, Jonathan Cohen, who's a clinical psychologist in New York, who's always been interested in what he and others call social emotional learning and layering that into school experiences so we can teach kids the, some of those same capacities. And then our first step to having a list of things that we focus on that we now call the quality of sustainable and independent learner is that along the way, you always have a couple teenagers who aren't so good at those things, but can do well at memory and actually get good grades. And at Winston, we factor in some of those habits of a good student into the grading system. So it's not just how you perform on a test. You have to do all of the habits to lead up to performance as well. And we had a couple of students in the early 2000s really battle us on, hey, I'm doing really well in all my tests and quizzes. And, you know, you guys are marking me down for all this other stuff. So to make our point, we took a whole bunch of college applications. And then there's always those questions. There's like five to eight of them where they ask you to rate on your recommendation form to rate students in some of these same things so like work ethic, attention to detail, time management. And we pulled our favorites and made a list and we called it the Winston readiness scale. So we started rating students on that. And that was, and then we turned into a more research informed, valid, reliable measure of those things. So we could really get to what we call the skills that matter. And yeah, we find them to be transferable. Our graduates talk about how they're transferable. One of the reasons that I became so interested in this set of things is because all the way back at the school in Pennsylvania, when you ask students after they left why they were successful at the Janus School or what's allowing them to be successful now they're in a mainstream environment or back in college, almost without fail, they would start talking about things like, well, I understand myself as a learner way better than my peers. I know I need to do X, Y, and Z differently. I had one student once say on a talk show we were on together that he thought that his time with us allowed him to know himself really well, understand his strengths and weaknesses, and he knows that a lot of adults never get to that place. And sort of say, well, Colin, what about reading and writing? Didn't those improve? Oh yeah, I got better at reading and writing. But reading and writing and math is always the afterthought. What they started, what the students started telling us was the process orientation, the self-awareness. Those were the things that mattered. And so we started to try to codify and replicate what they were telling us was important. That's how this focus on QSIL and social emotional learning happened. We were just trying to assess and understand them early on at the school in Pennsylvania so that we could tailor our instruction to meet their academic needs. So that exercise of assessment-driven 
understanding driven process orientation, we learned it taught the students process orientation. It didn't just teach them reading, writing, and math. And it also taught them about themselves. So we were having an impact on dimensions of them different than what we intended. And 30 years later, we've now made that concrete part of what we do. In terms of the Winston readiness scale, is that something that you as staff teachers grade them on or do they grade themselves on those specific attributes and then you compare and contrast or how do you go about evaluating and, and monitoring how they develop these kind of soft skills? Yeah. So it, it used to be just the reading scale that we used. We asked them to do for themselves, we asked their parents to do. Now we have a more sophisticated measure where we ask them questions about situations, reveal their resilience or social problem solving. So it's a little bit more of an indirect, but simultaneously more sophisticated statistical measure, but it does give us scores that we can sit down and, and use for reflection and goal setting. And we have scores for their teachers view of them, their view of themselves and their parents. And we compare and contrast those and have informed conversations. Sometimes there's a big disparity. Most of the time there's not, like I said, when you give kids the opportunity to be self-reflective and understand themselves, they dive right in and they get it and they want to do better. The opportunity is everything. And especially when that opportunity is informed by having tools like that can really, as Jonathan Cohen, who I mentioned a few minutes ago says, what you measure is what matters. So if you're not measuring it, ultimately people aren't going to care about it. Like you can talk about social emotional learning all you want, but if you're only doing grades and test scores and you're not measuring resilience and problem solving, then it's going to seem like background noise. So we're trying to make them just use the term soft skills. I'm trying to push back against that. I think, you know, soft somehow applies they're less important. I, I don't know anything. Everybody calls them that, right? But that's the term in the business. World. I'm like, what's so soft about resilience and social problem solving? Like if I could give kids in the world one thing, it would be resilience, you know, because then they could battle through whatever came their way and bounce back and keep going. I don't want to have to choose between reading, writing, math, and resilience, but if I got to pick one, it's going to be resilience. Are you reflecting on the scale of resilience through social emotional learning and creating measurable goals? As you listen to Scott and his work at Winston Prep, contemplate your process. Are you focused on the outcome or are you working through the process on a day-to-day -day basis? Which works best for you and why? Patience in developing positive habits amidst failure and frustration is vital. Join the conversation and explore the transformative power of embracing the journey. We believe in working through this process together and building a community at Raise Mindset. Learn more today at www.raisemindset.org. What are the main things that you gauge resilience on in, in your students? And do you believe that these skills can be taught in any individual, regardless of background or education? For the most part, yeah. I mean, I think there's times where there's a baseline of mental health that needs to be there sometimes. And if it isn't, there's solutions for that as well. That's different than, than what we do or, or what you do. But I think if you have a, a person who's intact in, in that way, then certainly you can 
teach them to be resilient in school and on the athletic fields and in theater and in music and, and all of those things. If you make it a priority, if you consciously have it part of the lexicon, you're doing that with the mindsets. We're doing that with QSIL. Part of why we did that, part of why we did that rating scale I talked about with the student who didn't understand was to give the student a lexicon about this stuff, to take it from soft skills, hard, nameable, identifiable things that we can talk about and try to measure. Because you can't do it in the background. You, you can't like do chemistry and a little resilience on the side. You got to make sure that building resilience is part of problem solving and teamwork is part of what your explicit goals are in the chemistry lab. So you have to make it explicit. You have to have a lexicon. And if you do that, if you get people talking about it and raising awareness of it, then it can become as important as reading, writing, and math. And people will get better at it through practice like anything else. There's people who come with more of it than others. We see kids who are remarkably resilient despite years of struggle in school. They don't need us to teach them resilience. But more often than not, they're discouraged. They're broken down by their school experience. And they need us to, this isn't on the, on our QSIL factors, but it's embedded in resilience is that we have to rebuild the link between effort and achievement. That link gets broken for a lot of students. And it's a really complicated subject because so many adults misassign the cause of a student's struggle with lack of effort. And that's wrong. But it doesn't mean that effort's wrong, right? It means that effort has not been effective for certain people in a variety of areas because they don't have the skills and they don't have the resilience. So, so we have a big task on our hands is reconnecting effort with success. But we're in on the bargain, right? We're saying to students, if you try, like the swimming pool thing, if you try, if you jump in the water for us, we're, we've got half the bargain too. We're going to take responsibility to teach you. We're not going to question your effort. We know this isn't about your effort. We know that spelling is genuinely hard for you or paying attention is genuinely hard for you. We're going to max out our effort. You're going to max out our effort. You'll see that over time, patience and process orientation, your effort's going to pay off, but we have to show them that's true because if they've tried every day in school for five years and they get to us in sixth grade and for five years, they tried to read and they struggled, what they learn is that effort doesn't work. So effort's not the cause, but it is part of the solution. We have to rebuild. That's so important. How do you show them that optimism? How do you show them that there's hope through this process? You know, you have to catch them succeeding. You know, you have to really pay attention. You got to have that process orientation so that every time they successfully do the right thing from a process standpoint or have a small success, even if the final outcome isn't what they or you want it to be, you gotta find those little moments catch them being successful, say, look, that's it right there. You, that was resilience. You kept, you know, whatever it is, or no, you didn't get the right answer in that math problem, but you did these three steps really well. And last week you were only doing two of that. 
So you, you got to break tasks down. I think this is very important. Break tasks down into their subcomponents and give feedback on every subcomponent of a task rather than just the big outcome definition of a task, right? Again, the sports thing, if you score a goal, that's clearly successful. But all of the things that add up to that goal on the part of everybody in the field is something that you as a coach are assessing and understanding and giving them feedback about the process that leads to the result. I don't think schools do that enough because it's all about the test and how you did on the test and what your final number is. And we're trying to break it down and say, okay, well, look, maybe you got a 50 on last week's math test, but look at what you did well. And then look at what needs improvement and let's view it through that lens rather than you got a 50 and we move on. And that's such a simple distinction, but it's so important because it says to students, first of all, we're not going to give up on you because you got a 50 on a math test and go to the next thing. We're figure out what you did well, figure out what you didn't do well. So we can use that assessment in class as part of the process orientation to learn what you're doing well, which you got 50% of it, right? It's not total failure, but it is in the conventional grading system. And the 50 you didn't do well, let's figure out how to make it better. That game changing for, for kids because they start to get a process orientation. And also what I think is really important, they learn how to do error analysis on their own, which is what assessment should be about. What'd you do well? but also what didn't go well. And instead of just being frustrated about it, moving on, let's analyze those errors so we can improve. And if, if I can teach a student to do that's a skill that lasts a lifetime. You know, what went well for me and what didn't, how can I learn from it and get better? That's an independent lifelong learner. That's what we're really trying to build. Because that's going to hold up long after math classes and chemistry classes are over. That lifelong independent learner and assess their own experience and figure out how to get better. You know, that's what it's about. And so teach, I believe teachers and coaches and everybody else need to have that mindset when we're helping kids frame those moments so we can turn those things that otherwise might just be a letter grade, number grade, and move on into self-reflective, self-improvement experiences. So I think we're caught up in conventional education in this black and white pass or fail, A or B, you know, with these binary ways of, or rating ways of labeling a performance on an academic task instead of analyzing the performance for what was successful, where we're struggling with confusion and, and how do we help that turn it into a narrative instead of a label and a narrative that you can understand, yeah. right? Again, game film. You can take a win or a loss as a win or a loss. Most good coaches, whether it's a win or a loss, are going to engage their team in a journey of assessing and understanding what happened in that game, what went well and what didn't go well. Man, if we could take that mindset and have it in every classroom in America every day, then we'd be forming generations of kids who can problem solve rather than who are driven by short-term success or failure, good or bad, overly simplistic definitions of their experience. What's the education process beyond that for the people that 
have a huge influence in the individual's lives when they go from your environment back home or with their friends or their social circles? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, one, we try to be fully transparent about everything we do, everything we believe in, our philosophy, our practice, so that when parents choose to send their student to Winston Prep, they're doing it with an understanding, a deep understanding of what we're all about so that they can partner with us and we can work together. Because if you don't share the perspectives that we're discussing, it doesn't work, right? So the good news is most Winston parents come in with open eyes and they're choosing this because it makes sense to them. They might not understand every detail of it. They might not agree with everything we do, but conceptually they're buying in literally and figuratively. And, and we also try to educate them as we go. This conversation we're having today is a conversation we have with parents all the time, because even if they believe in it, hopefully most of them do. And that's why they're choosing our school and our approach. Most people are coming from conventional experiences that are all about performance are all about short term are all about grades, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and don't have a process orientation and aren't focused on social emotional learning. So sometimes it's hard for parents to trust it. Sometimes it's hard for them to, even if intellectually they get it to really give themselves over emotionally because their kids struggled and they had to families have to circle the wagons to survive. And they often have not had cooperative relationships with schools. So we have to continually remind them that we're a safe partner to, to do this work, but it takes time. It takes patience. You have to settle in for the ride because uh, none of what we're describing happened quickly or easily. You have to be relentless about the process and patient. And that's understandably hard for people who are coming from all of these cultural influences that we're talking about, including the very design of conventional education. Looking ahead, what do you feel is in the future for Winston Prep? What do you think is the, the priority in the next step for, for your school and education as a whole, both academically and in general? Yeah, you know, it's a, that's a, sometimes a difficult question for me because I think sometimes I'm, I've become so steeped in a process orientation that it's difficult for me to talk about outcomes and goals and what next, because you're just immersed in the process and the work every day. You know, simply put, we just want to help as many kids as possible. That's first. We just published a study in a learning disabilities journal about how social emotional learning and growth and the, some of those capacities, resilience, et cetera, that we were just talking about predict academic growth. And that we we've shown that through this research. And that's the kind of thing that I want to do more of so that we can tell the story that will allow others to believe one, believe that there can be improved outcomes for these kids, that schools can change. Think about this. Here's an idea that a point I'm trying to make. Schools can change cognitive performance. IQ, Alfred Binet said, it's not meant to be a fixed measure of intelligence. I believe, and I, we are proving, that schools can make kids more intelligent. I think that should be the goal of school, not an elaborate sorting mechanism to filter the good students from the not so good students. 
but shift the learning curve for everybody, make everybody more capable. That's possible. And we're showing it. And I hope spend as much time as I can the rest of my career, along with my colleagues and inspiring a future generation to prove that point. Because I think if we prove, continue to prove and, and find open minds to the idea, that's what schools can and should be doing. And think about what that means. That means that we can shift human potential by changing everybody's cognitive function via school, make them better every day. Practice turns into performance. Does that result in a higher functioning culture and society, academically, cognitively, and socially, emotionally? Do we make society more resilient in general? Do we make a generation of people who are better at social problem solving? You know, that goes some pretty cool places. And I believe it starts with school and we're showing that that can be done. So. That's what I'm thinking about every day, and that's what we're doing. We're just trying to do more of it and pick spots where we can really make that work. As we come to the end of today's insightful conversation, I want to extend our heartfelt gratitude to Scott for sharing his expertise and dedication to holistic student development. The work and research at Winston Prep, led by Scott and his staff, is truly remarkable. To learn more about that impactful initiatives, make sure you visit winstonprep.edu today. Remember, change starts within ourselves. Where do you see resilience in your skill set? Recognizing its power can help in various areas of personal growth. If you're facing challenges with outcomes, know that adjusting your process day by day can lead to improvement and success in your endeavors. Our aim is to solve your problems, but to empower you with understanding and self-confidence, enabling you to navigate challenges independently. When you succeed, you'll positively influence your community and friends, inspiring them to become the best versions of themselves. Thank you for tuning in. Remember to share, like, and subscribe so we can continue to bring you stories of inspiration and resilience. Until next time, stay well. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please subscribe and leave a rating and review. To stay up to date with Embracing the Journey, Living Beyond Limits, and get all the behind-the-scenes content, visit www.raisemindset.org forward slash podcast where you can find links to follow us at all our social media channels and available podcast platforms on Apple, Spotify, and Podbean. Thank you for listening.